Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. It's awesome to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for coming out on, on Easter Sunday, the day that we celebrate, obviously, Jesus dying on the cross. I thought this morning it would be fun to just do something a little bit different. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've done a lot of Easter Sundays. I've been in church all my life, and so um, you know, I've, I've, I've been a part of a lot of different Easter Sundays. I've never seen somebody do this particular thing on an Easter Sunday, but it was sparked by a conversation that I had with Don and Dee uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then a couple of other conversations that I had. But I just thought, you know what would be a fun thing to do? Would be to just answer a couple of really big questions about God, which something, uh, I, sometimes I think we get scared of questions. Sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh, don't talk to me about how that worked or this worked. And, and faith, faith's just the answer to everything. Someone says, well, what about this? Ah, oh, just, you have to believe, man, faith. But the truth is that, that Christianity is very scientific, that the Bible says we should always have a reason to give an answer for the hope that we carry. Uh, and so there's two very big questions that I wanted to look at this morning. And the first one is this, did Jesus Christ exist? Like, we, we have a Bible, and we say, of course Jesus Christ existed. But this may surprise you, there are some people out there that think Jesus Christ didn't exist. I've met some of them. They're annoying. Right? <laughs> and you have, you have a conversation. They're like, yeah, but I don't even think Jesus Christ existed. And I'm like, well, I do. And they go, why? And I'm like, because the Bible says he did. They're like, yeah, but if you don't count the Bible, which is obviously biased, then, you know, what do you put you, how do you believe that? And I'm like, oh, Stupid, annoying. Faith, faith, man. You know, so oh, I've got to do some, some research on that. You know, did Jesus Christ actually exist? And the second question I want to ask this morning is if he did exist, then who was he? Like, who was Jesus Christ? And I would argue that this is probably the single most important question you'll ever ask yourself in your life. This is more important than who should I marry? It's more important than what should my career be? It's more important than what am I going to have for dinner tomorrow night? It's more important than any question you can come up with is who was Jesus Christ? Because your answer to this question impacts every area of your life. So let's start with the first one. Did Jesus Christ actually exist? As a person, 2,000 years ago, was he walking around on planet Earth the way that we all believe he was based on what we know in the Bibles? Now, when you're looking for evidence of somebody's existence, particularly historically, there's three main sources that we look to draw from. And they are classical sources, so Roman historians, Greek historians, they are Jewish sources, and then, of course, Christian sources, which, if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, would say, I don't believe any of that stuff uh, bias. But let's acknowledge, first of all, the Christian sources, which is predominantly the Bible. When we read our Bible, it's abundantly clear that everybody involved in the New Testament is operating under the impression that Jesus Christ was real. Right? You've got his disciples that followed him everywhere. You've got his family. You've got all of his extended followers. Two of the first four Gospels, or the only four Gospels, two of them are written by disciples, Matthew and John. You've got two written by Luke and Mark. They were written by sort of second-hand accounts, but they were talking to people that knew Jesus. All of the letters in the New Testament, you've got Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. You've got James, who was the brother of Jesus. John and another disciple. And then Paul, who had a radical encounter with Jesus on the road to... Uh, where was he going? Damascus? Look at you, educated Bible people. That's awesome. I'm going to brag about that on Facebook later. Um, 
So the, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was real. Like we, we've got his birth, we've got his death, we've got a lot of the stuff that he did during his ministry. It's a little bit vacant around other parts of his life. There's one encounter when he was 12, when the Bible talks about him kind of getting left behind by his parents uh, and staying in church. But other than that, uh, it's pretty much birth, death, ministry. Right? But there's all, I mean, the whole Bible uh, New Testament is just wrapped around the person of Jesus Christ. So it's impossible to read the Bible and come away with any idea other than Jesus Christ was a living, breathing person. But what about outside of Christian sources? Uh, what about Greco-Roman sources? This is a guy called Gaius Cornelius Tacitus. Now he was born sort of AD 55, 56. Uh, to give you some idea on timeline, most historians believe that Jesus was maybe not year zero, but, you know, within a handful of years of year zero, he probably was executed around 33 AD. We know it was between 26 AD and 36 AD because the Bible tells us it was during the reign of Tiberius, and that was when he was in charge of that particular part of Judah. So somewhere in there he died. He was probably around 30, 33 years old. So this guy was born maybe 20 years after Jesus died, lived until 118 AD. This guy was a Roman senator. He was a Roman orator. He's widely regarded as probably the biggest or best uh, Roman historian, and he did not like Christians. Uh, and so he wrote a book called The Annals just before he died. It's probably his last major work. And in it, he talks about Nero burning a large chunk of Rome in 64 AD. Who's heard the story of Nero burning parts of Rome? So Nero was a Roman emperor. He was, according to most historians, certifiably insane. He was absolute fruit loop. And he decided in 64 AD that he wanted to undertake a building project in a particular part of Rome. The only problem was there were already buildings there, and so he decided to burn them down. The fire got out of control, burned a lot more things than it was supposed to, killed a lot of people. People of Rome kind of miffed at the emperor, and so he comes up with this plan. I'll just lie, say it wasn't me, and I'll blame it on the Christians. Now, this is a verifiable fact. This is not historically up for dispute. This happened. He did it. And then we saw an intense persecution of Christians around that time with all sorts of horrific deaths that Nero would conjure up, you know, people being fed to lions in the arena, uh, people being hung, drawn, and quartered. Uh, he was well known for what he would do is he would tie Christians to poles, drench them in tar and oil, and then he'd stack them along the side of the road, and then he'd light them all on fire, and they would act as streetlights for people traveling around at night. He was an absolutely horrible man. But Gaius uh, Tacitus says this in this book. He says, Neither human effort, nor the emperor's generosity, nor the placating of the gods ended the scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered by Nero. Therefore, to put down the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts. This is a bit of a clue that Gaius Tacitus did not like Christians. He called them hated and shameful. Whom the crowd called... Christians, the founder of this name, Christ, or Christus in the Greek, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. So we know from this incredibly highly respected historian, who was a Roman senator and orator, that first of all, there was a man that used the name Christ, or Christus, that from this man, there was a group of people called Christians, that was where the whole kind of cult or sect started from. We know that he was executed under Pilate, and we know that it happened during the reign of Tiberius. This is from someone outside of the Bible, very highly respected, but it all lines up with what the Bible tells us about Jesus. There's another man you may have heard of called Josephus. Who's heard of Josephus? 
Flavius Josephus, a very famous Jewish guy who was born around AD 37, probably just after Jesus died, lived until AD 100. He was a Jewish aristocrat who kind of ended up spending most of his life in Roman aristocracy. A lot of the Jewish people hated him. They thought he was a bit of a traitor, but he still considered himself a Jewish man. And he wrote two very famous books. One was called The Jewish Wars, and one was called The Jewish Antiquities, or The Antiquities of the Jews. And his goal in writing these books was to try and convince the Roman aristocrats that the Jewish religion was something to be valued for their morals and their philosophy. Uh, He was a Jewish guy essentially trying to convince all the rich people in Rome, hey, you should, you should be Jewish. Like Jewish, it's like the cool thing to do. Right? That was kind of his motive. But he writes this in um, the Jewish Antiquities, which was published in 1893. He says, Ananus, thinking that he had a favorable opportunity because Festus had died and Albinus was still on his way, called a meeting of judges and brought into it the brother of Jesus, who was called Messiah, James by name, or Jacob in the Hebrew, and some others. He made the accusation that they had transgressed the law and he handed them over to be stoned. Now, this is fascinating because what Josephus has done here, he's trying to tell people that uh, James has been accused of transgressing the law and got handed over to be stoned. There's no record in the Bible of how any of Jesus' disciples or relatives died, but we know from outside Bible sources that all of the disciples were martyred in some kind of horrific way, other than John, who ended up trapped on the Isle of Patmos and wrote Revelation. We also know that James was stoned to death, and this is what Josephus is talking about. But what's fascinating is that Josephus has gone, okay, I'm writing that James got stoned, but James is a very common name back in the day. So I need, to, I need to put something down to help my readers understand which James I'm talking about. And he couldn't say, you know, back in the day, well, we would use our last name if we wanted to clarify which would say, you know, John uh, you know, Van Burkle or Josh Van Burkle. But in the, those days, they would say son of, and that's how you'd know who they were talking about. But he couldn't say James, son of Joseph, because Joseph is also a very common name. It would be like if I was trying to write a story, I wanted people to know who I was talking about, and I said, oh, John got executed, oh, they're not going to know which John. I'll use John Smith. Oh, that doesn't help either. That's a very common name. So he says, you know what I'll do? I'll write down that he was the brother of Jesus who was called Messiah. So the logical inference is that he believes that by saying he's the brother of Jesus, everyone reading will go, oh, I know who he's talking about. You wouldn't do that unless that person was a legit person that lived and breathed and actually was somewhat famous. It would be like if Abel said, look, I'm, I'm friends with Josh. Everyone would go, oh, Josh, right, yes, okay. Hey, which you do all the time, I'm sure. Yeah, all the time, right? So we, we know from Josephus that he, he wrote about Jesus. In another passage, he says this, Around this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who did surprising deeds and a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who in the first place came to love him did not give up their affection for him, for on the third day he appeared to them restored to life. The prophets of God had prophesied this and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, have still to this day not died out. Now, there is a problem with this particular quote, and I'll be honest about it. Uh, Most historians believe that some well-meaning Christians went back and edited this text uh, after he wrote it. But we can easily identify which bits we think are probably a little bit dodge. We know from Josephus' other writings that even though he believed that Jesus existed and wrote about him, he didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So in the previous screen where it says, 
you know, they left Jesus a wise man. He was one who did, you know, surprising deeds. Down at the bottom it says he was the Messiah. Most theologians believe that that was probably added in by some numpty Christian who just wanted to set the record straight. But, uh, you know, I did a lot of study into it, and pretty much every historian says, look, we can't throw out the whole thing. We can't accept the whole thing. But we think most of it is Josephus. Certainly bits talking about Jesus offending, you know, winning over many Jews and many of the Greeks, the part about Jesus um, being crucified, all that's accurate. The Christians down the bottom, uh, you know, following him and still not having died out, that's all Josephus. Uh, and then one more for you. This is Lucian of Samosota. And Lucian hated Christians as well. He wrote an opera uh, just before he died, around about AD 165, called The Passing of Peregrinus. And in the opera, he talks about a man, one of the characters that he's made up, which is obviously based on Jesus, who gets crucified. And he says this about him. He says, For having convinced themselves that they're going to be immortal and live forever, the poor wretches despise death and most even willingly give themselves up. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, he's talking about Jesus here, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they've transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshipping that crucified sophist himself and living according to his laws. A sophist was a very derogatory term that was used to describe like a cult leader or someone who taught people in exchange for money. It shows us that this guy Lucian had no time for Jesus or for his followers. But Lucian is widely held to be a very reliable guy because he flatly refused to use any Christian writings, didn't want to go near Christian writings. So anytime he says anything remotely close to talking about Jesus or Christians, everybody takes it on board because they know that he's not biased. So between these three writings, and there are others, but I'm not going to spend hours and hours talking about it, we know these things from outside the Bible, that Jesus existed as a man, his personal name was Jesus, he was called Christos in the Greek, he had a brother named James, he won over both Jews and Greeks, that Jewish leaders of the day expressed unfavorable opinions about him, that Pilate rendered the decision that he should be executed, that his execution was specifically by crucifixion, and that he was executed during Pontius Pilate's governorship over Judea in that 10-year period between 26 and 36 AD. This is all verifiable stuff from outside biblical sources. It's pretty cool, right? You know, did Jesus Christ exist? The answer is unequivocally yes. Next time someone says to you, well, Jesus Christ didn't exist, you go, well, that's, you know, you're looking pretty silly now, mate, you can say. Uh, and, and even, you know, I think we can categorically say that he did exist, and, and based on the research that I've done, the vast majority of historians have kind of agreed to agree that Jesus did exist. Um, but even if he didn't, you have a massive problem, because how else do you explain an explosion of Christianity at the exact moment in history where we all say Jesus Christ existed? How is it that you have disciples and people that kind of just explode in Rome that are so passionate about this man, so, you know, teaching his teachings, saying he's the one that taught us this, we lived with him, we ate with him, he so impressed our lives that they were all willing to be executed, wouldn't recant their faith. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of Christians in Rome, men, women, children, that were being executed. And were, you know, there were records or reports of them singing to God as they're being burned alive. It makes absolutely no sense to think that this just came out of nothing. There has to have been someone that started it. And so even if you get into an argument with someone who says, I don't think Jesus exists, then you just say, well, how, we are now, what, 2,000 years later? How many billions of people throughout history have said that they're a believer in Jesus, that they love God? That doesn't just start out of nothing. It takes more faith to believe that Jesus Christ was not a living, breathing person than it takes to believe that he was. Right? Just, it's just... Logical, right? Did Jesus exist? Yes. 
Now, the next question. If he did exist, who was Jesus Christ? How many people have had a conversation with someone and you've talked about Jesus and they've said, look, I believe in Jesus. I think he was a very wise man, a good man, a teacher. I just don't believe that he was the son of God. Have you ever had a conversation like that? Yeah, people say, look, I, I love his values. I love his principles. What does he say? Like, love your neighbor like yourself. Yeah, we should all, we should all be living like that. He was a good man, a wise man, a teacher, and I try and follow his teachings, but I just... You know, the fact that he's the son of God, that's like one step too far. And we tend to let people off the hook when they do that and say, oh, yeah, well, let's just agree to disagree. I, you know, I think it's great that you follow his teachings or whatever. There's only one kind of huge problem with this attitude that he was a good, wise man who taught people and had good values. And that's that he had this horrible habit of walking around everywhere telling people that he was the son of God. In fact, in the passage that I just read out before, the Pharisees literally said, we're killing him because he keeps claiming to be the son of God. How many wise, mature, good people do you know that walk around trying to convince you that they were there when the universe was created? How many think that that's a little bit out there? You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, wonderful argument called the, the liar, lunatic, lord argument, where he says, look, we've, you know, once you recognize that Jesus Christ was a man and existed, and then once you recognize that he consistently told everyone that he was the son of God, you have a problem. You either have to believe that he's lying, he knows he's not the son of God, but he's telling everybody he is, in which case he's a liar. So don't tell me that he's a wise, good, kind teacher and that you follow his principles. You know, you can't do that if he's lying about something like this. Or he is not the son of God, but he thinks that he is. So he's not lying about it. He's genuinely convinced that he's the son of God. Well, we've got a word for people that think that. Crazy. Right? If you walk around thinking you're the son of God and you ain't, you're crazy. So you can't follow someone's teachings who you've had to say, well, I, but I also think they're probably a lunatic. Right? And, and we have all these records of Jesus' miracles, which you can't perform if you're not legit. And again, we have this explosion of Christian faith around the time that Jesus was ministering, which again makes no sense if he's lying or isn't legit. If he's lying about being the son of God, at what point do you think he goes, sorry, he's telling some porkies? I would, I would hazard a guess it would be before the nails were driven into his hands and feet. I reckon about that point he'd go, sorry, I was just joking, you guys have taken this way too far, right? I don't know anyone that's trying to sell a scam that is prepared to be publicly executed to maintain the charade. Makes no sense. So according to C.S. Lewis, who's not a foolish guy, he said, well, then the only other option, if you're using your brain, is that he is the son of God. That has to be the only logical solution. And so what I want to do this morning, just very quickly for the last 10 minutes, is I want to explore this idea that the Bible actually tells us what to expect when we look for the Son of God. Let me, let me give you an example. Let's say that I said to, to you, Rachel, hey, um, I want to pick up that, that, sw that swing thing that we were talking about the other day. Uh, I'm going to get my mate Dave to come around and pick it up. Uh, Dave's about six foot three, very skinny, shock of red hair. He's got a thick Irish accent. He'll be on his way to the Crusaders game when he swings by, so he'll have a big Crusaders top on, and he always wears these jeans cut off at the knee, and he's got a scar that runs down here, right? I, I say that's, that's you know, what you can expect. If you get a knock on your door the next day, you open it up, there's a tall, skinny guy there, about six foot four, shock of red hair, scar on his face, crusader's jersey, you know, jeans cut at the knee, and he says, 
G'day there. How's it going? Are you going to say, well, who are you? You're not going to say that, are you? You're going to go, this is Dave. Why? How, how can you be so sure that that's Dave? Because your brain says, there's no way that someone else has turned up at my house wearing the exact same stuff that Josh said Dave would be wearing, looking like what Dave looks like, sounding like Dave. The chances of somebody else showing up at the exact moment looking exactly, I mean, that just doesn't happen. It's impossible. So we would all go, that's Dave. Well, that's what the Bible has done for us. All throughout the Old Testament, it has said, hey, when the Messiah comes, this is what it'll look like. This is what he will do. This is what will happen to him. This is where he'll be born. This is where he will die. Um, All throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jewish people, had prophets that would prophesy all the time. You guys know what prophecy means. It's to basically, you know, recognize something in the future and declare it today. And then you kind of wait to see if it's going to happen. And they would prophesy about all sorts of different things. But then every now and again, they would tap into this prophetic stream and they'd say, oh, and when the, when the Son of God comes, this is going to happen. So the Jewish people were living under, the, they were waiting for what they called the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, to come. And they believed that he would set them free from oppression of the Romans and you know, lead their armies and basically lead them into personal freedom, you know, spiritual freedom, financial freedom, whatever it might be. They were waiting for this guy. Um, And so I wanted to just look at a couple of these, but before I do, I wanted to just confirm one thing, and that is that uh, the Old Testament was written and ratified before Jesus was born. That's important to understand. Uh, In fact, some of these prophecies are so specific that some people have believed for years that uh, what Christians did was they went back and they they added stuff in after Jesus's life, that they went, well, okay, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, let's go back and write a prophecy that he was born in Bethlehem, and that'll make everyone think that it's prophetic. And that's, that's a fair enough assumption to think that someone might do that, except we know for a fact they didn't, because there was an amazing discovery in 1946 called the Dead Sea Scrolls. A couple of Bedouin shepherds looking for some lost sheep down by the edge of the Dead Sea, throwing stones into caves, seeing if they hit any sheep. As they're walking past, they throw a stone in. A stone in. in 1946, they hear the sound of shattered pottery. Oh, what's that? They go in, they find all of these scrolls that have been carbon dated to before the time that Jesus was born. They studied the writing, they've carbon dated it. This is, this is like solid fact, you can't argue it. The, 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 the newest date that they could come up with is 100 BC, and then it goes back and back and back. They found the 66 chapters of Isaiah. It was this copy of Isaiah they found in perfect uh, condition, pretty much, because it's so dry there in a cave. It is a thousand years older than the previous oldest copy that we had, and it was identical to the one that we had. And so we know when we read out these prophecies, you can't say, well, maybe there was some fiddling around afterwards. You just can't say it. You can come up with some other answers, perhaps. I'd like to hear what they are. But let's just look at a couple of these. Who was Jesus Christ? Remember, he's either telling the truth about being the Son of God or he's telling a porky. Um, So the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946. So in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, it says this. And again, we found this. It's been carbon dated to 100 years before Jesus was born. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Well, in Luke chapter 1, it says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, 
Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It says the Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 2, it says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, again, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is Hosea, you know, essentially speaking on behalf of God. You say, well, what does that mean? Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, we know from Matthew chapter 2, it says, when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it's fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. These are all things that Jesus had no control over. You can't control who you're born to. You can't control where you're born. You can't control what your parents do when you're, you know, one year old, two years old. Zechariah chapter 11, this is interesting. So Zechariah is, again, he's engaged in a prophetic vision. He's speaking on behalf of God. He says this. I, I won't go into the whole story of who he's talking to, but this is the important part. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So God says to Zechariah, 30 pieces of silver is the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. He threw them, threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. He's acting out this prophetic act that God's told him to do. A couple of hundred years later, Jesus comes along and so does Judas. Matthew chapter 26, then one of the 12, the one called Judas, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, which is the exact price that God said, that is what they will value me at. After Jesus was executed, Judas had this massive regret. And it says, when Judas who betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. That's pretty cool. Again, nothing that Jesus had any control over. Who betrayed him, what they betrayed him for, and how they betrayed him, and what they did afterwards. Um, now, this is what I really want to camp on very quickly. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 and 46. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when we read this, we think that Jesus is crying out to God saying, where have you gone? Why have you left me? You haven't got my back. But in the Jewish culture, their Old Testament, their books in the Bible weren't broken up into chapters like ours are. Like, if I wanted you to read Psalm 23, I would get up and I'd say, turn to Psalm 23, and you would open your Bible, you'd find the book of Psalms, you'd find chapter 23, and then we'd all read it together. In the Jewish culture, they wouldn't do that because they weren't broken into numbers, but everybody knew their Bible so well that what the Jewish people would do is they would just recite the first line of the chapter, of the Psalm. So, in the old days, I would get up and I would say, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you would all open your Bibles and you'd turn to that part in the Bible because you would all know where that is. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not, I mean, he may be talking to God about that, but what he's actually doing is he's saying to all of the Jewish people around him, hey, I want you to turn to this particular psalm. Have you noticed that the Bible makes a point of saying that he did it in Hebrew? So at the cross, he's got all the Jewish people watching, he's got the soldiers watching, he's got all the you know, visitors in Jerusalem because it was a really busy time. All throughout the rest of this gospel, everything that Jesus said, he says in, well, he wouldn't have said it in English, but he would have said it in Greek. But in this particular passage, Matthew says, hey, he calls this out in Hebrew. This is a message just for the Jewish people. It's in a language that nobody else would understand. It's Jesus on the cross, nails on his hands, nails on his feet. He looks down at the Jewish people and he says, hey, Look up Psalm 22. That's, that's what he's saying. Psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So every Jewish person there would have known, Jesus is saying, read Psalm 22. Look at what's happening today and read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is commonly referred to as the Messianic Psalm. It was written by King David hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. King David was not just a great warrior and a great king. He was also a poet and he was also a prophet. He'd tap into what God was saying and he'd write it down in song. And so King David writes this in Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. This is not David talking about something that he's experiencing right now. This is David tapping into what the prophetic voice of God is saying. And he's saying, this is what the Son of God is going to go through. So Jesus is up on the cross, all this stuff's happening, and he says, hey, Psalm 22, Psalm 22. He's, he doesn't want them to miss it, right? Matthew chapter 27, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him, which is exactly what David said. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. It's the exact words that the crowd and the soldiers were taunting Jesus with. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, they divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. What did David write in Psalms? Look at that. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garment. They pierce my hands and my feet. He's talking about a method of execution that didn't even exist in David's day. But, you know, it's widely believed that the Romans were the ones that really brought crucifixion in hundreds of years later. This idea that people would pierce your hands and your feet, no one reading it when David was alive would have known what he was talking about. It's a prophetic utterance to Jesus. Psalm 69, 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. What did we just read earlier? A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Jesus is given vinegar to drink. Again, he's got very little control over what they give him to drink when he's nailed to a cross. Isaiah 53, 9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Two other men, Luke says, were executed alongside him, both criminals. 
When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. It also says, I'm poured out like water. Again, David writing, this is the Messianic Psalm. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. A little bit later in the day, the soldiers came out. Look at Psalm 34. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So we know he's poured out like water. He's got some dislocations, but none of his bones are broken. Well, in John 19, it says this. Because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. What would happen is they'd execute people that nail their hands and their feet to the cross, and eventually they would start to suffocate on blood that would fill their lungs. But you could, it was a very painful process, but you could lift yourself up to kind of clear the chest cavity, and that would buy you, you know, another half hour or so. And then it would fill up again, then you could lift yourself up again. And so it wasn't uncommon for people that were being crucified to spend two or three days dying. But the Jewish leaders didn't want people hanging on crosses during the Sabbath. So what they would do is they would come out with a big stick, bang, and they'd just break the legs so that you were not able to lift yourself up to clear your chest cavity and in a matter of hours you'd suffocate on your blood and you'd die. It's pretty gruesome. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then they broke the legs of the other. They were all crucified at the same time. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. What did the psalm say? Not one of his bones will be broken. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water because the Bible says that he would run with water. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. As evening approached, this is after Jesus has died, there came a rich man from Arimathea, a rich man named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So this rich man came along, took Jesus' body, said, I'll bury him in my own tomb. So he's buried with the rich man. These are just a handful of prophecies. I think I've rattled through like about 12 or so. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, spent time in Egypt, was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, was crucified, crucified alongside the wicked, mocked and insulted, his clothes were divided, his lots were cast for his garment, he was given vinegar to drink, he was poured out like water, no bones were broken, he was buried in a rich man's grave. Just 13. If you want to study some of the biblical prophecies, there are, according to some scholars, over 300. There's just 12. What fascinates me is that there was a guy called Peter Stoner. i get the band to jump back up. There was a guy called Peter Stoner who was a, a mathematician. He wrote a book called, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it might be on a later slide. Science Speaks was the name of the book. And he decided to work out the mathematical probability that someone who had no control over where they were born, how they would die, all that kind of stuff, what was the mathematical probability that, that someone, just by chance... If there is no God, if God didn't design this and orchestrate it and make it happen, just by chance that someone would meet, you know, some of these prophecies. How, what's the chance that someone would fulfill eight of them? And using mathematical stuff that I do not understand, but he published a book on it, he said, look, I've come up with a number, and it was 10 to the power of 17, which is a 10 with 17 zeros after it. Now, I don't know about you, but numbers, I just like gloss over when I get to, like, to the power of 17. 
He said it is the equivalent of somebody taking a silver dollar, because he's an American guy, but it would be equivalent in size to our 50 cent piece. And he said covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep. The entire state of Texas. Now I looked it up. The state of Texas is just under 700,000 square kilometers. If you want to compare that to New Zealand, we're 268,000. So we're talking just over two and a half times the size of New Zealand. Imagine covering the entire country of New Zealand and then another one, and then another half one, two feet deep, up the mountains, down the other side, west coast, up the north, down the south, two feet deep with 50 cent pieces, and I paint one of the 50 cent pieces black, and I hide it somewhere. And I say to you, you got one shot. Just walk out there, find a spot, shove your hand in, pull out a coin. The chances of you finding the black coin that I've painted is 10 to power 17. It's the same chance that someone without divine orchestration could meet eight of these prophecies, according to this guy. And then he said, let's go a little bit further. What about if we went 16 prophecies? And again, I've just picked 13 or so that I thought were the funnest to look at. But he said, the chances of one person fulfilling 16 of these prophecies, and like I said, there's over 200. He said, imagine if you tried to make a ball of these 50 cent pieces and you went to the middle of our solar system, you started in the middle of the sun, and you just made the ball bigger and bigger and bigger until it was so big that the edges of this sphere that you've filled with 50 cent pieces is in line with Neptune's orbit. And I painted one coin black and chucked it in there and said, Jason, go find it. You got one shot. The chances of you picking out that one coin from a ball of coins that size is the chance of one person fulfilling just 16 of these prophecies. And that's why Professor Peter Stoner says this, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. I wanted to give you the confidence this morning that when we celebrate Easter, we celebrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We're not just a group of people who believe in myth not just a group of people that are asking people to just have faith, to just believe in spite of all the contrary evidence. The weight of evidence is very much on our side. In fact, I challenge anyone that doesn't have a relationship with God or doesn't believe in Jesus to really ask yourself, is that a position that you hold because you've looked at the evidence and you've decided it's not the case or is it just something that you've never really thought about? I watched a fascinating video this morning. I'll finish with this. Who's heard of of Jordan Peterson? A few people have, a few people haven't. If you've heard of Jordan Peterson, this might mean more to you, but essentially he's just a a middle-aged guy who somehow his opinions seem to matter to a lot of people. I'm not quite sure how he ended up getting the influence that he has, but he's written a few books, and he's a very conservative voice. He's not a Christian, but he's a conservative voice in a world where the majority of people who aren't Christian that have influence are not conservative. He writes books about how to live your life and how to treat people well and he uses Judeo-Christian principles and he'll say things like, you know, for a, for a society to succeed it has to be founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but he's not a Christian. I watched a video this morning, just stumbled across it while I was just looking for a, you know, something to talk about this morning, um, just to finish it off. I was actually looking for like an Easter Sunday video that I could play that would all be like, oh, that's awesome. And I just stumbled across it. It's a 90-second video, and it's someone asking him if he believes in Jesus Christ. 
And I thought his response was so fascinating because here's a guy that is extremely intelligent, very articulate, very learned, very studied, very hard to win a debate with Jordan Peterson. You can jump online and watch him just tearing different people to shreds. He's a very, very smart guy. And he's talking about this man, Jesus Christ, and it's just over a Zoom call. So he's just sitting looking at the camera. He's got his, you know, his headphones in and the other guy's looking on the other side. And, and he says this about Jesus. He said, look, he said, to me, Jesus existing is the most plausible answer to the question about whether Jesus lived or didn't live. Uh, and he made this statement. He said, but, and then he started to cry. I've never seen this before. He said, but, he said, the, the, the idea that Jesus is the answer to everything is, to me, the most plausible answer. But it terrifies me. He said, it terrifies me that it might be true. He's crying. And he said, because I don't know what that means. This is a guy that's wrestling right now with the evidence that he's looked at. And he said, I don't know what happens to you if you believe this, was the statement he made. I is crying, I don't know what happens to you if you believe this. I thought, what an interesting question. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what happens to you? stand to our feet this morning. We're going to sing one more song.